just exactly who was Jesus, how you answer that question will shape not only how you view the Da Vinci Code, but it will also shape your entire life. If what Dan Brown says is true, and he says that Jesus is just a man, then all of Christianity really falls apart and we can just close the doors and go home because we're wasting time. But if Jesus really was the Son of God, then we ought to pay attention to what he said about life and life beyond the grave. Dan Brown says to one of his characters, and I quote, Almost everything our fathers taught us about Christ is false. That's on page 235 in his novel. When I read that, it made my blood boil because he offers no proof. Dan Brown basically says, just believe me. There's no footnotes. There's no proof to what he says. Just have faith in me. He says faith is foolish, but have faith in him. And that's fine. That's what he wants you to believe. So as we finish our Da Vinci Code this week, our study of the Da Vinci Code, you're going to once again have the opportunity to make the call. We're going to look at what the Da Vinci Code says, what the Bible says, and you make the choice, you make the call about which book you're going to follow. Now, is it true, as Dan Brown asserts, that Jesus was not thought of as divine, and divine means God? So, Dan Brown says, the first 300 years of Christianity, uh, Jesus was not thought of as divine, as, as part of God. And he also says that the first century church knew that Jesus was not God, they knew that he was married to Mary Magdalene and they had this big cover up um, along with all this other information that that if they revealed it, it would show that Jesus was only human and not divine. And they wanted people to think he was divine, even though they knew he wasn't divine. All right. You got that? That's basically the whole novel. Now, um, according to the Vinci Code, any Gospels that that describe earthly aspects of Jesus life had to be omitted from the gospel. What was included in the New Testament? Now, this seems really ironic to me because when you look at the New Testament Gospels, you find um, descriptions of Jesus as a human being all of the time. What we celebrate at Christmas was Jesus coming as a baby, um, coming as a human. He was fully human. He went through the birth process. He really was real. And we sing this song every now and then, uh, this Christmas carol, and it says, The cattle are lowing, the baby awakes, the little Lord Jesus no crying he makes. That's garbage. When I was a youth minister, I told my teenagers, does anybody know of a non-crying baby? Anybody ever had a non-crying baby? Jesus was a crying baby because that's the only kind of babies that there were. And when he grew up, he went through pain. The Bible tells us that he, he cried. That's a human emotion. He went through all kinds of things. He got hungry just like we do. And he had to eat. He, he gets thirsty or he got thirsty just like we do. And he had to have something to drink. He got tired just like we do and he had to sleep. And when the crown of thorns pierced his brow, it hurt. He felt real pain and he bled real blood. Jesus was very real in what we have as the Gospels. The Gospels are the first four books of the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. Now, what's really ironic about Dan Brown's claim is that the Gnostic uh, writings. These are the writings that came 100 to 400 years after Jesus' time. These were not eyewitness gospels. These were not eyewitness testimony by any stretch of the imagination. They're the ones that tell stories that make Jesus look more magical or more godlike than the ones we have in the Bible. For instance, um, one time Jesus, as a boy, is he, he's making some pigeons, some birds out of clay, and then he says some magical words, and the birds fly off. They become real and fly off. That's in the Gnostics. That's not in the real New Testament. That doesn't sound real human to me. It sounds like he had some kind of supernatural power, seems to be emphasizing there. Another account, when the boy Jesus gets into a fight with another boy, he curses the boy. This is in the Gnostic Gospels. Please understand that. He curses the boy, and the boy dies. 
Now, I tried cursing the class bully when I was a boy. He didn't die. He just hit me harder next time. And so that, you know, that's the human side. If you want to emphasize that I got my my brains beat out, you know, messing with the, the, the class bully, not Jesus. If you look at the Gnostic gospel. So this is kind of some irony. Now, here's here's the one that, that really got my attention the most. Um, another story says that after Jesus died, Jesus rose from the grave again. Please understand, this is the Gnostic writings, not what we have in the New Testament, the Gnostic writings. Um, Jesus comes back to life, but when he comes back to life, he's huge, like a Paul Bunyan type. So he steps out of the tomb and he's Paul Bunyan type. But that's not even the best part. Then after Jesus comes out, according to the Gnostics, the cross comes out of the tomb and it's a talking cross. It's like some whacked out Disney movie or something, you know. Now, that does not seem like it's emphasizing the human side of Jesus to me. These are actual stories in the Gnostic writings. Now, the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John and and the 27 books that are in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John are the eyewitness testimonies that talk about Jesus life. They do not have those kind of stories in them and they don't present Jesus as a single man because they're covering up. Um, you know, some kind of history here. They present Jesus as a single man because Jesus was a single man. They're presenting the truth. And there is no shred of evidence from any document written within 100 years or even 500 years of Jesus' time that says anything about Jesus being married. But the other thing is this whole idea that Jesus was not thought of as God's son, as divine, as equal with God for 300 years, just does not square with the facts. And I want to show you something. The Apostle Paul, and to be an apostle in the New Testament times, what we consider an apostle, you had to be an eyewitness of Jesus once he rose from the dead. None of us would qualify, and you know, unless we ate some really weird stuff last night and we had some dream or something. But you had to physically see Jesus rise from the dead to be an apostle. So Paul, he's one of the, the, the ones that all scholars agree wrote within just a few years of Jesus' death and resurrection. He says in Colossians 2, 9, For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. What is a deity? A deity is a God. Now, please understand, for a Jewish man, a first century Jewish man who believes in monotheism, monotheism means there is one God and you could be killed in the Jewish religion if you said there was anything other than this one God. For this man who who believed this was trained in it for him to say all the deity of God that we know dwells in Jesus in bodily form. That was just a staggering statement back in that time. In the Gospel of Matthew, written by an eyewitness during the eyewitness years when people were still alive, Jesus says to Simon Peter, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Now, Jesus doesn't respond to Peter by saying, no, 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 no. I'm just a man like you. Now, later on, we find out in the New Testament, Paul was preaching and he actually did some healing and stuff like that. Some miraculous things. These men rush up to him and they start saying, oh, you are like Zeus. You are the God Zeus. And Barnabas is is like Hermes and all of this stuff. And what does Paul say at that moment? He tears his robe, which was a sign of mourning. And he said, God forbid, we are men just like you. Do not worship us. Worship Jesus Christ. But Jesus didn't say that. He didn't say, I'm just a man. He was like, you got it right. He says to Peter, blessed are you, Peter, because flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you. My father in heaven revealed it to you. John, uh, another one that was an eyewitness, he says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and the word became flesh and lived among us. The word, capital W, refers to Jesus because the word became flesh. That was Jesus and dwelt among us. 
So as a matter of historical record, that many of the first century followers of Jesus were killed for their belief. All they had to do was stand up and say, you do not follow Jesus. I do not follow Jesus. And they would be spared. But they said, we have seen him alive. We are convinced he's alive. And I would rather die than to say he's not alive. Now, to come along like Dan Brown does and say that people would willingly die for something that they knew was false, that's the biggest leap of faith of all for me. And it makes me angry for those people who gave their lives for what they knew was true. Now, let's figure this out. On your listening guide, you've got some questions there. And we're going to go through these questions very quickly. First of all, how did Jesus view himself? All right, this is the first question. We've got to know, what did Jesus think of himself? We discovered a couple of weeks ago in this series that the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are the earliest writings uh, about Jesus' life, and they were completed between 40 and 90 A.D., so within a 70-year time period. And in order to be, uh, to be considered in a court of law, they had to be within a 70-year time period because that's when people were still alive and they could tell you whether it was real or not. So these were all written then. According to these four books of the Bible, what did Jesus teach his followers about himself? Well, here's a couple of things. First, he allowed others to call him the Christ. I just showed you that one when Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. That's in Matthew 16. Later, when he's before um, the religious leaders, they said, are you the Christ? And Jesus says, it is as you say. Now, another thing, he said he could forgive sin. Matthew 9, he did this a lot. He did it on the Sabbath day. He did it on any day he wanted to because he could forgive sin. And the religious leaders were astonished and they said, who can forgive sin but God alone? So the religious leaders of the day knew he was claiming to be God when he said, I can forgive sin. Um, the next one, he did not stop others from calling him the son of God. Matthew fourteen thirty three. And this was considered blasphemy and you could die for it. In fact, this is why Jesus eventually died, because he said, I am the son of God. And that's why they killed him, because it was blasphemy. The next one, he promised to rise from the dead. If you look in the Old Testament, there's all kind of predictions about Jesus. Um, this is one of them, that the Messiah would be killed and would rise from the dead. So when Jesus made this claim, people knew he was claiming to be the promised Messiah. The last one is he said he would be the ultimate judge at the end of time. In Matthew 25, he's telling his followers what's going to happen. And so he says, I'm going to be the one who sits there and judge people. Who does that? But God alone, according to the scriptures. Now, this is OK. So we see this just a quick snapshot of, of Jesus, how he viewed himself. And he let others call him the son of God. But big deal. Anyone can make those claims, right? People today, you can go to some of the, the mental hospitals and you can find people who believe they're Jesus Christ. So the next question is, did he have any of the attributes of God to back up his claims? All right. This is the next question. So if you were to enroll in seminary, I was in seminary back in the in the early 90s, was there for four years. And, and one of the first things I learned was some terms that we're going to go over real quickly. These terms are the attributes of God. If Jesus was going to be God, then he would have to have these same attributes. The first one is omniscience. Now, you might want to just jot this down because these are some kind of big words. But omniscience means all knowing. He has all knowledge. One of my favorite stories is Jesus says some things this one time. His disciples are listening and he says, where I'm going now, you can't follow, but I'm going to come back and you'll be able to follow. So his disciples, they go over to the side and they start saying, what is this? He means where he's going now. We can't follow, but later he'll come back and we can't follow him. What does this mean? And Jesus walks up to him. Now, they, they, they wanted to ask him, the Bible says, but they were kind of scared to ask him a question. So Jesus walks up and he says, let me tell you what I mean. You've been discussing among yourselves. What does it mean? Da, 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 da. And Jesus tells them and they are astonished. And, and look what they said. 
in John chapter 16. Now we can see that you know all things. There it is, omniscience. And that you do not even need to have anyone ask you a question. They were asking each other. They're afraid to ask Jesus. Jesus comes up and tells them the question that they wanted to ask. By the way, he did this with the religious leaders all the time. Says they would think something. He would know what they were thinking. He would say something to them. And they said, this makes us believe that you came from God. All knowing. Next one is omnipresence. That means to be everywhere all at the same time. Present everywhere all at the same time. Now, obviously, when Jesus was in the flesh, you can only be one place at one time. So after he was resurrected from the dead, look what what he says. The last thing he tells his disciples, Matthew 28, 20. Be sure of this. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Sounds like he's promising to be with them all the time. Another time he was instructing them how to carry on the church after he had gone back to heaven. Matthew 18, 20. When two or three of you are gathered together because of me, you can be sure that I'll be there. So Jesus claimed that he was omnipresent. The next one is omnipotence. All right. Another all these omnis. Omnipotence means all powerful. You got all kinds of power. Matthew 28, 18. Then Jesus came to them and he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Authority means power. And so all power belonged to Jesus. The next one is eternality. That means he always existed. He was not created. And by the way, this was the Council of Nicaea in 325. They were discussing whether Jesus was co-eternal with God or whether he was a created being and then later appointed the son of God. That was not the uh, vote that Dan Brown tells you about that, that Constantine got together the Council of Nicaea to establish the Bible. That's not true. They got together to discuss whether Jesus was really co-eternal with God. And so they had a vote. Dan Brown tells you it was a close vote. The vote was actually 300 to 2. Okay? Now, I, to be totally honest, I've got to tell you about this. The first vote, 17 people were against it. And Constantine, this is the one thing he did. He stood up and he said, well, if you don't believe this, then, then the church is going to excommunicate you. So 15 of those 17 said, oh, if they're going to excommunicate me, then Jesus is co-eternal with the Father. But regardless of whether it's 300 to 2 or whether it's, it's uh, 280 to, to 17, it still, would anybody um, not want that type of, type of percentage if you were in an election? <laughs> 90%, either 99% or 92%, either one, it's still very good. Now, this next word, I thought this was one of the strangest words. Well, let me read what, what the Bible says. In the beginning, the word already existed. He was with God and he was God. So he was not created. This next word, I thought it was just a funny word. And, and I never heard it till I went to seminary. But now I've heard it you know, many times when you hear scholarly people that like to say words that make them sound like they know what they're talking about. Immutability. Anybody ever heard that word? Immutability. Um, it means unchanging. See, I'm the type, I'm like, just say unchanging. <laughs> Immutability means. Hebrews 13.8, Jesus Christ never changes. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So the New Testament associates all of these attributes of God with Jesus. But that's not all. In the Old Testament, if you go and you read through this, the Old Testament, you'll get a portrait of, of God. All right, here are some of the terms associated with God in the Old Testament. Um, Alpha Omega. Lord, Savior, King, Judge, Light, Rock, Redeemer, Shepherd, Creator, Giver of Life, Forgiver of Sin, and Speaker with Divine Authority. The incredible thing is that when you go through the New Testament, you begin to read every one of these terms is applied to Jesus Christ. So let no one tell you that, that Jesus didn't think He was the Son of God, that His followers didn't think He was the Son of God. Even His enemies knew that Jesus was claiming to be the Son of God. There was no doubt. 
Jesus summed it up when he says in John 14, 7, If you really knew me, you would know my father as well. Loose translation. When you look through the Old Testament, you see a portrait of my father, you'll recognize me as well. Like father, like son. So Jesus viewed himself as God. He taught others that he was God. And he has the attributes of God. And he has all the titles of God in in the Scripture. Next question is, is Jesus still dead? Now, every book I've ever read, I've read a ton of them about Jesus and about how you can know whether he's real or not. Everyone eventually gets around to this question. Now, Jesus could have been mistaken about thinking he was God, you know, like folks that are in some of the mental institutions. He could have been mistaken. But the evidence backs up his claim. For instance, he taught like no one had ever taught before. He performed miracles like healing blind people, deaf people, dumb people, lame people, diseased people, paralyzed folks, and even bringing folks back from the dead. Now, I don't know about you, but those are the type of things I would expect the Son of God to be able to do. You would need to have power over nature. You'd need to have power over diseases, power over... Stuff that normal people don't have power over. So Jesus backed up his claims. And Jesus wasn't crazy. If he was crazy, his teachings would not still be relevant today. The amazing thing about Jesus' teaching is they still apply 2,000 years later. You've got to be pretty sharp for your teachings to still be hanging around and, and impacting lives 2,000 years after you say them. And so Jesus didn't show any signs of being a con man who led gullible people astray. So if he's not crazy, he's not a liar, that leaves us one option. He's the Son of God. He's the Lord of Lords. He's the King of Kings whom He claimed to be. In his book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis writes this, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Him. And here's the foolish thing that people say. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept His claim to be God. C.S. Lewis says, This is one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with a man who says he is a poached egg. I love the way C.S. Lewis puts things. Or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Jesus predicted he would die. Now, that's not that big a deal because I can say I'm going to die. And you're not that impressed with my prediction, are you? Now, Jesus also said he was going to die on a cross. So I could say, I'm going to die in a car wreck. You're still not going to be that impressed with my proclamation. However, if I tell you every day, I'm going to die in a car wreck and I'm going to rise from the dead, you're probably going to think I'm nuts. But if I tell you that for several years and then I die in a car wreck, what are you going to do? You're going to watch, you know, you're going to probably go. Some of you, I know you'll go with the camera. There go the bones of Doug. <laughs> there they are. They're laid in the tomb. Some of you, you know, t- today we can put the camera up, you know, 24 hour and it can be motion activated. You can even have the night sensor vision. They do that with deer. You know, it's kind of funny that they sell those things. But you can do that and you're going to watch to see if I come back from the dead. How long? Are you, how long does it have to be before you say he ain't coming back? I mean, David Koresh, you remember him, the Branch Davidians? He said, I'm going to die a fiery death and then I'm going to rise from the dead three days later. Been a bunch of years. Anybody seen him? No, he died and he is still there. Jesus backed up his claims. And in fact, the Bible tells us that over 500 witnesses saw Jesus Christ alive at the same time. And Paul, when he wrote about this in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, some of them are still alive. What he's saying is, you don't believe me? Go talk to the witnesses. 
You ever had a case or seen a case in the court of law where there were 500 witnesses? We convict somebody with one eyewitness, two, it's a it's an open, closed case. But 500, it would take a long time to listen to all of those people. All of the witnesses from the New Testament agree. Jesus rose from the dead. Gary Habermas is one of, if you've been to any of the, the Da Vinci Code discussions, he's one of the scholars that, that uh, is, um, is interviewed. He says, the resurrection was undoubtedly the central proclamation of the early church from the very beginning. The early Christians didn't just endorse Jesus' teaching. They were convinced that they had seen him alive after his crucifixion. That's what changed their lives and started the church. Certainly, since this was their centermost conviction, they would have made absolutely sure it was true. Okay, Jesus claimed to be God's son. He taught people he was God's son. He had the attributes of God. He came back from the dead. So, what does that matter? Well, let me tell you what that matters. In Joshua 24, 15, the Bible says, Choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. This is where the Bible, actually, I think that, you know, Monday Night Football got the you make the call from the Bible. Because the Bible says you make the call. Joshua is standing before the, the children of Israel and he says, as for me and my house, we're going to serve this God, but you've got to choose. He says, if the, if the God's your father's, if that's God, you follow them. But if Jesus, well, he says, if God is God, Jesus wasn't alive then. He says, God is God, you follow him. But make a choice. Don't pretend that, that you can just live in the middle. You can't. You've got to decide one way or the other. Jesus says in Revelation 3.20, I stand at the door and knock. This means everybody has a choice. Either you ignore the knocking, you turn your back on him, or you open the door. Now, Jesus could put his foot through the door, but he won't. He will make you make the choice. He'll, he'll defer to you. Real love has a choice. See, if he made us love him, that wouldn't be love. So real love um, involves a choice. So God gave us the capacity, to, the capacity to choose whether we would love him or not. Now, he said, in essence, if you choose to live apart from me during your lifetime, I will honor that choice. But you must understand that I'll honor that choice for all of eternity. Your choice not to honor God with this life carries over into the next life. And God will honor your choice for all of eternity. But Jesus says that if you'll choose to receive his gift of forgiveness now, he'll begin an incredible relationship with you that lasts beyond the grave. And honestly, sometimes Christians, we get frustrated because we want to make choices this type of choice, especially for our, our family, for our loved ones. But the Bible makes it real clear. Every person must make their own choice. So let me explain it like this. It has been said that all of humanity can be divided into three camps. Over here we have Camp A. All right, Camp A. I guess I need to put that up there. Camp A. Now, what I'm going to do to represent a life, this is a circle. This is a life. Camp A are those people who have found God. So I'm going to put a cross in their life to say that they have found God. These people have sought after Him, have found Him. They've asked Him to come into their lives and they have become followers of God. Camp B are those people who are seeking God. These people have not found Him yet, but they're open to the possibility that maybe God exists. So I'm going to draw them here as these circles. They do not have Christ in their life, but they're open to the possibility that Christ exists. Now, the Bible promises in Joshua 20, uh, let's see, make sure I get this right. Joshua 29 or Jeremiah 29, 13. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. So the Bible promises that everybody that's in this camp who is moving this direction, the Bible promises they will eventually make it into camp A because the Bible says, if you seek me with all your heart, you will find me. 
So everybody in Camp B is eventually going to be in Camp A. All right. Now, we have this group of people over here in Camp C. This group of people is not seeking God at all. So I'm going to put the cross here, but I'm going to put this this way. They are moving away from God. There is nothing in their life that helps them pursue God. And folks in Camp C may be closed-minded, they may be scared, they may just not care about God. But the deal is, Camp C is a dead end. There is no hope for anyone in Camp C. The, the, the other thing is, there is no downside for folks in Camp C to move into Camp B. Because if you move into Camp B and you just say, well, maybe there's a possibility that God exists. If there is no God, those in Camp B don't have any problem. But if there is a God, those in Camp C are damned forever in hell. That's what the Bible says. Now, people say, well, how can a good God allow pain and suffering? How can a good God send someone to hell? A good God does not send anyone to hell. People choose hell. Is that clear? These people have chosen to follow Christ. And Christ says, you will be related to me forever. These people are seeking God. The Bible says people that seek God will find God. These people are away from God. There is no hope is what the Bible says for them. Now, if there is a God, you've got everything to gain. And I want to finish today by telling you the story of a businessman named Bill. And he grew up in a home where everyone was the proud resident of Camp C. Bill's mom once told him, I don't care if you become a drug addict. I don't care if you become a bank robber or if you bring home a boyfriend instead of a girlfriend. There's just one thing I do not want you to do in life. Become a Christian. Now, you can imagine, you just play this out in your mind. What kind of life would Bill live if he had everything he could do except become a Christian? Um, in his mind, since there was no God, no one could tell him what to do. He was his own God, his own man, and he decided what he wanted to do. So he became dominated by what felt good and what he could get away with. Sexual pleasure and sexual conquests were at the top of his game. That's what he wanted. That's what he sought with everything. And he suffered the consequences because he had all kinds of failed marriages and, and failed relationships. Now, living this godless life, he eventually came to a point where he had no hope. So what did he do? He turned to drugs and alcohol. But in the midst of all of that, or maybe because of all of that, he became willing to open his mind just enough to move from Camp B into Camp C. And he prayed. He prayed to this God that he'd always rejected, always made fun of. And he said, please get me out of this mess. So he moved to Camp B. Now, after being scared by a dream one night, he went to an all-night bookstore near his home in San Francisco, and he, he found a Bible under a stack of pornographic magazines. He purchases the Bible, this book he's made fun of, and that he's never taken the time to read or understand. He takes it home, and he begins to read all night the account of Jesus, the historical record of Jesus recorded by Luke. Now, he discovered three things when he read Luke. First, he discovered that Jesus is who he claimed to be. Second, he discovered that he, Bill, mattered to God. And third, he, he discovered that he had to make a choice. He had to choose who he was going to serve. So he made the decision on January 25th, 1980. After 30 years of the emptiness of atheism, he said a prayer that wasn't very pretty, but it expressed his heart. He said, Jesus, I want to be with you instead of what I'm doing. 
He admitted that he was a sinner and he asked Jesus to forgive him and lead his life. In other words, he graduated from Camp B to Camp A. Now, over time, God changed this man in a radical way. He was able to break, break free from uh, alcoholism and drugs and the lifestyle that he had, he had been in. He began to rebuild his lifetime. His whole attitude changed. He started an, org, an organization to help atheists understand, um, work through their spiritual confusion and, and come to God. And he even started a ministry that provided um, necessities to children in communist countries. Guy was radically changed. And he even loved, learned to love his mother. He began to understand that she was just a sinner like him who was engaged in wishful thinking that there is no God. And why did she want that to be true? Why did his mom want there to be no God? Because in reality, according to this man, his mom did not want to face the consequences of the immoral life that she was living. After he became a Christian, he sent a letter published in a number of major newspapers throughout the United States. And here's what he said. As I now look back over 33 years of life wasted without faith in God, I pray that I can, with his help, right some of the wrong and evil I have caused through my lack of faith. You want to know the guy's name? William Murray, the oldest son of Madeline Murray O'Hare, the famous atheist. William Murray opened his mind enough to become a sincere seeker. But as far as we know, his mom never did. She was brutally murdered by someone that, that she knew through her organization who wanted just to get at the money that she had collected. Godless in life, godless in death, and we figure she died in Camp C. So according to Jesus Himself, she spends forever in a place called hell because she didn't want anything to do with God on a place called earth. Now, what about you? Some of you still have doubts. You are still trying to figure out if this God thing is, is for real. And uh, I just want to ask you, are you willing to decide for yourself? Are you willing to look at the evidence and decide for yourself whether this thing is true or not? Hebrews 11.6 says about God, He rewards those who earnestly seek Him. So what have you got to lose if you're in Camp C and you move to Camp B? Absolutely nothing. But what have you got to gain? Absolutely everything. Would you bow your heads for just a moment?